namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa buddhang dhammang sangam namasami It's very inspiring to be with all of you and to see how well trained you are as a community and how still, how much you observe and care for the routine, the schedule, the place, each other. It's just like poetry. And that comes from attention to detail and to qualities of heart very conducive to developing virtue, concentration, and wisdom. And these are qualities like gratitude, so many ways of expressing gratitude, and also the contentment with little. Everyone is just receiving what's being given. There's a lot of renunciation, consideration, and respect for each other, for the silence. It's almost like being at the monastery. The only big difference is that you're not staying. (laughs) That's a big difference. It's like a, a tradition that you've developed in community. The quality of Renunciation is a great fuel for concentration, for developing mindfulness, right mindfulness, right concentration, right effort, the whole path. There isn't a a limb of the path called right renunciation, but it pervades every limb of the path for sure. it is one of the paramitas, nekama, nekama quality, renunciation. The other night I was telling you about how it's not enough to just give up desire for worldly pleasures, to give up unskillful qualities in the heart, such as hatred and ill-will, greed, and such like. It's not enough just to do that, but we also have to be able to translate skillful qualities into our daily life, in our relationships. So that's why when we come together to practice, we're practicing in silence, the food is prepared by lovely Deva crew. And we eat in silence and work together. Everyone has their task. But these conditions only exist here. And then when we leave the gate of this center, we have to go back to the busy world, and it's a completely different set of conditions. So. The important thing is not only developing qualities of mind 
that work well and are bright and shiny in perfect conditions. But how do we sustain that when we're in not perfect conditions? And of course, even if you were to stay here long enough, eventually we would feel that these conditions are very imperfect, even though they're really great. The critical mind has this tendency, and that's why when you stay, there comes a time when the staying begins to go through the initial phase of enchantment and delight, and you get to the precipice where those qualities of mind fall away and other habits of mind come back into the foreground that we haven't uprooted yet, such as the complaining mind, the whining mind, the wanting, the I want this, I want, why can't it be, all those little niggly, maybe not coarse types of defilements, but more subtle ones that can get very loud. And that's what happens in monastic life. We stay, and the veneer rubs off pretty fast. And then we're left with just a few faces, a few very dharmic people. We really want Nibbana. But we are not perfected beings. We're just aspirants, life aspirants trying to perfect ourselves, creating a beautiful atmosphere, beautiful conditions, lovely shrine, and seats laid out, candles on the shrine. It's a sanctuary. And yet, how is it possible for us to go through such mountains of dukkha within that little sanctuary? Haven't we left all of that at the monastery gate? All of those eight worldly winds, aren't they out there in samsara, not in here in the monastery or in the retreat center? We bring them with us wherever we go. We have pockets. I don't mean clothing pockets, but similar whatever we're carrying in our pockets, in the pockets of the heart, wherever we go, we can smell that. We taste it, we hear it, we see it, we feel it, and it oppresses us. And in daily life, there are so many ways for us to be distracted so that we don't notice that burden very much. But when we apply ourselves to the practice, we see the mind gets still enough, the gross impurities are washed away a little bit, and then we start to see other stuff that we didn't know we were holding on to. How can we be hating somebody that we haven't seen in years? And what are they doing here in the retreat center anyway? (laughs) How did they get in? Because we brought them. We have memories. We've had experience. We've had traumas. 
people have poured out their suffering onto us, just as we have onto them. Because of a lack of training. Years ago, when I was living in a very large community, there was always somebody that would be giving you a hard time, or that you thought was giving you a hard time, or that one found oneself giving a hard time, too. At one time, there was somebody that I just couldn't seem to communicate well with. And she was senior to me, so there was probably a resentment of that authority because I had all my opinions. You think that if somebody's senior to you, they should be wiser and behave better and treat you better and all the rest of it. So you develop this righteous anger, which is such poison. But we were right next to each other in the line, so I always had to sit next to her. And this is the beauty of it. You follow the form, and the form is, it's a formula, and there's an etiquette, and you always follow that. Even if your heart is on fire, and boiling over with resentment, or critical mind, judging mind, this person doesn't deserve Whatever it is, she shouldn't even be eating. They <laughs> can really be nasty. You're, you're following behind in the line, and she takes the last potato, <laughs> which you could see that there was one left. Oh, okay. Where's the loving kindness? Where's the generosity? Where's the spirit of sharing? Because the mind is on fire with greed, hatred, and delusion. In the monastery, in the robe, with a shaved head, just walking on air, according to the people offering the food, we have no kilesas, and yet our hearts are trying to burn through this stuff and maintain composure and bow to the shrine and sit very calmly next to this person and be extremely polite and try to be a good man. But in the end, one has to burn through it in the face of the very person that seems to be the cause of the fire. Until we start to realize that the fire is being fed by fuel in my own chitta. It's not coming from anybody else. And it might feel humiliating, but it's really a good thing. Because through that humiliation, the ego just gets stomped on and seen for what it is. And one can take that step of renouncing again these unskillful mental habits, and to establish oneself again in what is wholesome, what is true, what supports the inner beauty. And one feels in the morning when one wakes up and goes through the events of the day and and sees these things arising, one doesn't feel worthy of the food. One doesn't feel worthy of the offerings. People come and smile and and say, oh, it's so peaceful here, and you feel like you're in hell realm. (laughs) But the reason that 
it is peaceful is because we're using our training, we're using our rules to hold us together. To never utter an angry word. I don't even know if that person actually knew how angry I was when I was angry. I might have told her long afterwards when we became pals. And then we had a good laugh about it. The restraint, the the commitment to the rules of training creates is so powerful that you're guarding your sense doors to an extreme. You're really on guard. Certainly sometimes you accidentally slam the door. You weren't mindful intentionally. Well, who's that going to hurt? It hurts us. You know that they're coming and you make a noise because you're so angry. And you've got to do something. So unskillful. There's no actual rule broken, but they might notice. Well, she's so impatient. What's wrong with her? It's like if you're driving in traffic and somebody passes you and cuts you off, how do you feel when they do that? You feel like saying something nasty, but you don't, because that wouldn't be safe. But when you become trained in the Dhamma, then I remember once I was being taken from a teaching engagement, and this woman had a race with some other car, and she finally just sped ahead, and the guy shook his fist at her. So when she got to the toll booth, she felt really bad, because she was a meditator, and she had compunction in her heart. So she paid the toll for him. And then she slowly moved out of the toll booth, and when he went to pay, and the officer in the booth said, that car has paid your toll, he couldn't believe it, of course. And then he was waving and smiling with gratitude for this well-deserved kindness. The mind is untrained and unruly, and it needs, just like in meditation, it needs an object. And we give it the breath. The breath is a neutral object. It's an object that we can be pretty friendly with. We don't have anything against the breath. But if we spend long enough looking at our breath, pretty soon we're going to experience all kinds of mind states. Hatred, anger, fear, worry, anxiety, every hindrance that has not been eradicated or toned down or subdued to some extent, or even uprooted, in the best scenario, is going to rear its ugly head at some point, and we're going to be aware of what we still have to work with. Even there in that neutral, harmless, benign little breath, even in this innocent body full of organs and muscles and bones and oil of the joints and all kinds of matter, the 32 parts, livers and lungs and things. They're not angry. They're not traumatized. They're not crushed by life, overwhelmed. But the mind, 
the mind, the untrained mind is. And so when we observe the body, which is quite neutral, and we observe it long enough, repeatedly enough, then it's as if we start to shed all the formalities of behavior, like nice posture and looking cool, calm, and collected. And we sit long enough with ourselves, and everybody's behaving so well. But we start to experience what we're carrying around, and that's a good thing. Then we have ways of working with it, so that we start to use mindfulness, clear knowing, and diligent effort to see these things for what they are and understand them in their true light, not identifying with them, not owning them, so that we can wash them away once and for all. But that takes a long time. It's like we have to do the laundry over and over and over again until we get it, until the mind is trained. And that's exactly how it is in the monastery. Because of seeing what we really are in each other, we become like mirrors. We just reflect each other's dukkha over and over and over again. But if all of us are practicing satisampajanya, if all of us are taking refuge well in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha, if all of us are practicing right effort, that is, letting go the defilements that arise, letting go the anger, the greed, the projections, the blame, the jealousies, all of it, the fear, the anxiety, the resentment of authority, all the attitudes and opinions that we bring in to our monastic life or to our retreat life. Imagine if you had retreat was forever. Don't leave the center. Then we would be doing this. We'd be going through it with each other. Everything that we go through with ourselves on the cushion, it would start getting expressed. That's just what happens. But if we're training well and we can let go the anger and instead bring up forgiveness, bring up the understanding of where is the origin of this dukkha? It's here. Take responsibility. And then if we're cultivating the good qualities, preventing those unwholesome states of mind and instead cultivating metta, karuna, mudita, upeka, Cultivating them means planting the seeds for loving-kindness. We may still feel resentful, but we won't act it out. We restrain, we contain, we train. Until we get the message deeply, this expression of unwholesomeness is only bringing affliction to me, affliction to the other person, affliction to both. It obstructs wisdom, creates difficulties, and does not take us, does not incline my mind or anyone else's towards Nibbana. It's just a war zone. Otherwise, if we're keeping those four right efforts, cultivating 
good qualities of heart, gratitude, generosity, composure, contentment, forgiveness, seeing the goodness in others, focusing on their virtues, not their weaknesses, just as we would wish them to do for us. Unselfishness, serving, serving and offering. Even if all we have to offer is our weakness, our tears, our fear, just offer it. This is all I've got, but offer it in the sense of letting it go. Offer it up into the fire on the altar. Let it burn there. So then we don't own it anymore. We're not solidifying it. Instead, we're cultivating those beautiful qualities of heart. Composure, concentration, wisdom. Through seeing, this is not me, not mine, not myself. And this is to be given up abandoned, removed, destroyed, letting it be dissolved in the fire of our love of the practice, our love of truth, our love of Nibbana, inclining the mind towards that which will free us, the unconditioned. So virtue begins with seeds of virtue. And as we train, it grows. It grows through the purification of the heart. It grows through the purification of action and speech, foremost intention. Taking the rules, people say, why do you want to keep all these rules? Some of them don't even apply in modern life. But we do it out of respect for the Buddha. This is the package. We don't pick and choose. Out of respect for the Buddha, we keep every rule with fear of the danger of the slightest fault, the slightest transgression. But we're not perfect, and the Buddha, in his wisdom, established a system of bi-monthly review of our rule and coming together to acknowledge our faults and forgive. We act as agents of forgiveness. We ask for forgiveness, and we forgive each other, and then we begin fresh. But if it's a grave offense, we are called into question, do you really want to be a nun? Why are you doing this? Because it would harm the integrity, the moral fabric of the community. And this system is resilient, stable, and profoundly effective. So to train the heart is a wonderful thing. The training through renunciation, through purification, through determination, through concentration. Those are a lot of shuns. <laughs> We're shunning foolish ways. That's the first blessing. Shunning fools and foolish ways. What we do here is association with the wise, with wisdom. And we support each other. It's the meaning of Sangha, coming together in community to support the highest in each other. First we have to work through the rubbish. 
in lay life, in any life, as human beings, we're putting out the rubbish every day. Can't let it accumulate. I went into the kitchen today to put my tea bag compost into the compost bin fast, not to let flies in or the smell out, because these things are dirty. It's garbage. Smelly, it's moldy, it's disgusting. Flies love it. But what we carry around in our hearts is similar. And yet, most people don't know well enough to daily renounce all this rubbish, abandon it, remove it, destroy it. They don't know. So we end up accumulating lifetimes of really sticky, clingy stuff, and we dress it up, prop it up, beautify it, adorn it, and it runs our life. It governs us. It drives us. It moves us. Ignorance, craving, the tentacles of the ego, so tenacious. And then our society reflects that. You look around, any city you go to, religious buildings are dwarfed by these skyscraper banks and institutions that grow on, feed on, thrive on greed and profit. Meanwhile, the condition of the religious institutions, the churches, the congregations are closing their doors and having to use marketing techniques to get people to come to a service, to a gathering. How lucky we are, how really blessed we are to have found what the riches of this life really consist of, what the riches of this life can bestow and where they are to be found, and to dedicate ourselves to developing them, cultivating them, and bringing them to life in our hearts and in our lives, in each other, in our community, in our family, in the world. And even though it might seem like we're working against a tide well beyond our means or our strength to keep it in check, we must never give up. Because together we can have enough of a mass of goodness to balance out those other forces in this world. I remember right after we moved to the land at Satisarana Hermitage, we were given over 500 baby trees. We had a work day. About 25 people came out and helped us plant them. And then we had a drought. And for the next few months, the two of us had to water all these trees. And we figured out these amazing systems like how to get the rain barrel onto a cart and how to roll this thing out or use the lawn tractor to drive it from field to field and water all these trees. We had to do it frequently. 
But we kept them alive. Then we had another drought. The second year we lost quite a lot of trees. And then the third year of drought, most of the trees died. But our spirit didn't die. And especially the trees in the front, the cedars, the kids that came out to plant them with us were in their 20s. And we were one in her mid-40s, and the rest of us were in our 60s. And we worked until every tree was planted. And those kids were exhausted after the first hour, and they said, well, we've got to go, and they left. <laughs> and we just finished it. We were so happy. And we thought, well, what are kids made out of these days? <laughs> I think that the practice gives one a lot of energy, a lot of verve, a lot of determination. And when you become really one-pointed, it doesn't matter how much it hurts, it doesn't matter what else there is to do, there's nothing else to do. But what you got to do, your hair could be on fire, but you're going to do it. You're just going to focus so much that you can do it. Because you know that your life, not your body, but your heart, the health, the freedom of the heart, the wisdom to be gained depends on that effort. That's how we keep going. Never give up. Give up the things that are worth giving up, but never give up inclining the mind to the riches of this path. That will lead freedom for all of us from the burden of this world. In our invisible work, we are producing precious fruit for everyone. So I offer that for your reflection tonight. Sadhu Karam Dadamasu Sadhu Sadhu Sadhu